That's the problem. Investors don't know statistics well enough to be able to differentiate skill from luck. Hello, fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with continuing my discussion with Larry Swedro, who is head of financial and economic research at Buckingham Wealth Partners. You can learn more about his story in episode 645. Larry has a deep understanding of the world of academic research about investing and especially risk. Today, we're going to discuss a chapter from his book, Investment Stakes, Even Smart, investors make and how to avoid them. And today is going to be mistake number seven. Do you confuse skill and luck? And number eight, do you avoid passive investing because you sense a loss of control? Larry, take it away. Yeah. So one of the hard things for most people to understand is that when you have a lot of people engage in an activity, randomly, you would expect a few to win over a very long period. So the example you hear in the world of investing is someone like Bill Miller beats the S&P 500 for some long period, 10 or 15 years, and people automatically assume that must be skill. Statisticians would know that you have to run T-stats or T-statistics to look at what were the odds that that was a purely random outcome. So the example I like to give people and the one I use in the book is that if you have a stadium filled with 10,000 participants and you ask them to flip a coin and heads wins and tails loses, after the first round, you'd have randomly about 5,000 winners, right? After two rounds, about 2,500. And after 10 rounds, you still would have about 10 people. That would be the median expected outcome of if you ran just a Monte Carlo simulation like that, where you're drawing random outcomes, right? You would expect to have 10 winners. Now, so then I say, would you put your money on those 10 to be the winners of the next contest to win and flip 10 heads in a row? or even outperform you know, 50%, more than 50% of the time in what is purely a random luck game, right? And the answer, of course, is no. So how do you tell in the world of statistics, in the world of investing, when a money manager wins or outperforms 10 years in a row, what you fail, most people fail to consider is there are 10,000 or more mutual funds, more than there are stocks. Right. And so randomly, we should expect, you know, several, if not a bunch to outperform even 10 years in a row. So what you have to do is run statistical tests. 20 years ago, or actually now it's 25, when I wrote my first book came out in 1998. At the same time, Charles Ellis was writing his famous book, Winning the Losers Game. And he was explaining that active management, which is the art of stock picking and or market timing, is a loser's game, meaning while it's possible to win, just like it's possible to flip 10 heads in a row, right? the odds of doing so are so poor you shouldn't try. When he wrote his book, 
and I wrote my first book, about 20% of active managers were outperforming the market before adjusting for taxes. So today, that number is about 2%. So 2% of money managers today are outperforming on a statistically significant basis, passing a 5% hurdle, meaning 95% probability it's skill. There's still a 5% chance that it's luck. And that's the problem that investors have. They chase returns. They look at a manager who has won two, three, four, five years and has outperformed. Morningstar then overweights in their star ratings, overweights the more recent performance. And then money we know from studies flows into those five-star funds, which are purely random, likely in outperformance. And because they have done well, the stocks they have bought tend to trade at higher PEs, and they go on to underperform. That's the problem. Investors don't know statistics well enough to be able to differentiate skill from luck. This is such a great topic, and I want to kind of step back, given your knowledge of this, and help people walk through this a little bit. First of all, okay, so I was on the... uh, internet looking at something the other day and it was a device where you it has a bunch of beads like 10,000 beads and you flip it and it has a name for it I forgot what it's called and then the beads fall down randomly through some you know device that's causing them to be dispersed randomly and then they fall into these 10 deciles you know 10 groups and it turns in they always the, the bell fall, curve yeah into the bell curve and so we all can understand or visualize a normal distribution like that and basically, the first thing that, that we should understand is that there's a normal distribution underlying probably most things in life as far as outcomes are concerned. We do have sometimes skewed distributions, but for the purposes of this discussion, let's just focus on that normal distribution. So as a result, you have 10,000 mutual funds, you measure their performance over time you're going to get a normal distribution. It's not going to be exactly like the mean average normal distribution, or as you were saying, like the the average outcome, but it's going to look pretty close to that. Is it going to look exactly like that? Or are we going to see some more and more at the tails of that? Or that's the first question is just to understand, okay, that's the theoretical normal distribution. And then if we just look at a normal distribution of 20 years of performance of mutual funds, 10,000 or something, are they going to fit almost exactly into that distribution? Well, the curve will actually be normally distributed. However, it's going to be shifted to the left because the average active mutual fund underperforms significantly because of basically its expenses. Their trading costs are too high. They sit on cash, which has lower returns than the stocks they invest in on average. So those are the problems. So the entire curve shifts to the left. You do have numbers in the tails with a few great outperformers and a few horrible performers. The problem is the outperformers are a bit less than expected in the right tail, meaning fewer outperformed than randomly expected. That's what Fama and French found in their 2010 study. 
and others have found the same thing. And you would tend to have more in the left tail because of their expenses being so high and they trade a lot. Now, if you own just a Vanguard total stock market fund with you know almost no turnover other than acquisitions and delistings and three basis points or you know whatever of expenses, you're going to get that normal distribution. Now, the last point I want to make is something we have covered in our previous discussions, which is the average stock distribution is actually skewed to the left. And the reason is, while the most you could lose is minus 100%, the most you could make is infinite. You, you own Google or Microsoft, you might own you know hundreds of percent per annum. So a very few stocks, 4% of all the stocks, account for all of the excess return over T-bills. That means the median stock has a return well below the mean because a few in the tail pull the averages up which means if you're an investor, you have to ask the question, what are the odds, one, that you can own those stocks, and then two, hold on to them for the entire time? A great recent example just happened. Kathy Wood's ARC fund sold all of their shares in NVIDIA before January, and the stock is up 130%. So that's an example of even if you picked an NVIDIA, but now you sold it because you thought she wrote that the PE was in the 50s. It's too high. Turned out it was too low, right? So that's a problem for investors. The individual stock distribution is left skewed, which means the importance of diversification is even greater than it is for a normally distributed. And there it's important anyway. And when you talked about the outcome of the, the funds, you talked about the fees and that shifts the average to below what would be the index because of- Fees and trading costs. Yeah, okay. So let's say all costs, expenses, all in, the average of that group is never going to even equal. It's always going to be less than the average of the outcome of the market. Palmer and French found that to be about 70 basis points. Now, if you take, say, $60 trillion of stocks times 70 basis points, right? you can figure out how expensive it could be. Now, obviously, not everybody is an active manager, you know, fund, but if everyone was. So it's still costing investors billions of dollars a year. Of course, there are a few winners, mm. not many, and the odds are great that they were lucky, but of course, they'll think it was skill. The people who win attributed to their brilliant decisions and the people who fail, what they do is they attribute it to bad luck, not their bad decisions. That's human psychology that protects our egos and prevents us from feeling too bad about ourselves. <laughs> Which is very important. And yeah, uh, let that keeps the suicide rate down. Yes. yes, exactly. We don't want that going out of control. Now, let's take that same distribution. And let's remove the average return of the market and say we're no longer looking at that distribution relative to that center point being the average return of the market. If now we change that distribution to be the average of, we're looking at the average outcome of those funds. 
And now we're saying, forget about the market for a minute. All we're doing is looking at that normal distribution of the outcome of all of these funds, a little bit like your coin flip example. We're watching the behavior of these guys over 10, 20, 30 years. And over a long period of time, what we're going to see is some type of normal distribution. And when we look at the outperformers, what my question is, and I think you can explain it, you mentioned about T-statistic, but in a way that can help us to think about it, how do we understand if an outperformer is in that group at the tail because of skill versus luck? Right. So the first thing you have to do is look at risk-adjusted performance. So we know, for example, over the very long term, value stocks have outperformed growth stocks and small stocks have outperformed large stocks. So somebody who outperformed simply because they owned lots of small and value stocks more than the market, that's not outperformance on a proper adjusted basis because you and I can invest in an index fund that owns that amount of tilt to small and value. So before you continue, so, okay, excellent point. The problem about looking at only return and making that distribution is we're not considering the volatility that you're exposed to. So let's now recalculate. And the different risks you're exposed to, not just the volatility, but there are different factors, a handful that the academics have uncovered with the main ones being size, value, momentum, and profitability or quality. Okay. That so, it's the exposure to those factors that really drives the return. If you consider those four factors, we can explain about 98% of all the returns without looking at the individual stocks people bought, just so, their exposure to those factors, which means so, there's very little room for active managers to add value. It's that remaining little sliver. So if, if we make that normal distribution now, risk-adjusted return, and then we find this group that's, you know, really is producing a risk-adjusted return that's significantly above the average risk-adjusted return, and we know from statistics that there are a certain number of participants that will be there simply because of luck, and there'll be some that are there because of skill, is what we're going to do then is test that group relative to the factors and say, okay, well, you were just, this guy was just overweight a particular factor and therefore he's in this group, not because of skill, but because of the overweight of this particular factor that worked very well over that period of time. Right, that's exactly the first step that every investor should do. Fortunately, there's a wonderful tool made available on a website called portfoliovisualizer.com. I use it all the time. I've written over the years analysis of probably 20 fund families to show does Morgan Stanley's mutual funds add value. And what I do is I run a horse race against the leading index funds like a Vanguard and then the leading passive or systematic funds from dimensional fund advisors as a benchmark. And I run the alphas using the regression tool on Portfolio Visualizer, which shows you how much exposure the active fund had to those factors, and then says, what's the alpha or the remaining performance that cannot be explained? The alpha could be positive or negative. 
And so that's the first step you want to take. And like you said, you could still be in that right tail and be statistically significant at a T-stat of two, but that still means there was a 5% chance that it was a random outcome, which means if you had 10,000 funds and you had 50 of them, right, in that tail, that's exactly the number you would expect randomly. So it's pretty hard to tell. Now, if they their T-stat was four, that's telling you it's pretty likely that there's some skill there. The problem then becomes this. Successful active management contains the seeds of its own destruction. <laughs> and the reason for that is that when people see that outperformance, Morningstar gives them five stars, more sophisticated investors like you or I run Portfolio Visualizer, and we see the T-stat, and then maybe we'll do due diligence and call up and interview and all this stuff. And some consultants recommend them, and all of a sudden, institutions now are piling in based on that performance. Well, now they've got a lot more dollars to invest. There's only two ways for them to deal with those dollars. One is they keep that concentrated exposures because mm. you have to look different to outperform, right? If you own basically the index, you're going to get index returns. But if you do that, then your market impact costs go up significantly when you trade and it becomes almost impossible to outperform. There are many papers written about the diseconomies of scale in active management. So the other alternative is to diversify, then your active share goes down, and now your higher costs get spread over a smaller and smaller amount of a differentiated portfolio. So if you have 50 basis points, say, of greater expenses, and it's spread over only a 3% differentiated portfolio, your odds of outperforming, you know, you've got to add more than 6% to outperform in the remaining stocks. That kind of alpha is incredibly difficult. One or 2% would be great. So that's the problem. One, it could still be luck. But two, you want to look to see, is the fund, has it, their assets growing? And if they've grown, the odds are pretty good that outperformance will disappear. The other thing you can look at is the metrics of their stocks they're holding. So if did the cash flows, you know, are they in the hot stocks and their values have gone up and now you're buying at much higher PEs than they were, that's the curse again of winning. And that would be a sign that you might not want to chase the outperformance. It becomes extremely, the bottom line is this. Mm. The thing I tell people to do is to think about if anyone's likely to outperform by picking managers, I would suggest it should be the largest pension plans around because they hire great consultants, every one of them, Goldman Sachs, SEI, Russell, anybody else you want to name. All of them are dozens of really smart people with PhDs in statistics and finance. They have access to the best databases. They do 
thousands of interviews every year. You can be sure they've asked every question you or I could think of in doing their due diligence. And the evidence shows their ability to predict future winners doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, the two big studies on mutual endowments and mutual fund outperformance show that the stocks that these endowments funds that the endowments bought after firing their previous fund went on to underperform and the ones they fired went on to outperform after they fired them. So they were better off, one, not paying the consultants and number two, not trading at all. And then I posed this question to them, Andrew. I said to them, look, you hired the consultant or you did it on your own and you followed a procedure and it didn't work. Those managers didn't go on to outperform, even though they had outperformed in the past. So what makes you think that it's what you did in the past didn't work? What are you doing differently to make, convince you that you won't fail this time? And the expression I've gotten the hundreds of times I've asked is, duh, you know, no answer. Because there isn't any. That's the they procedure. No, we do that. And, That's the system that we follow. Said, right? Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different act. So they're doing that mistake, but they don't know what else to do, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a couple abandon the game. But the then they wouldn't need to hire the board of on their investment policy committees. You could just fire them. Which then brings in all kinds of other issues that we're going to talk about, I'm sure, in the future. It reminds me of a particular book, which for some reason I don't see it on my bookshelf, but it's called The Model. And I'm going to highlight Richard Lawrence on my podcast was episode 687. And he basically has a very good performance. But what he did is he limited the amount of money that people could put into his fund. And he did that. In fact, he did it over time. And he said that in up markets, down markets, you know, you can't take out or put in. And that helps our performance. The second thing I wanted to show, and I'm sharing my screen. Yeah, for, go to uh, the factor regression under factor analysis. Okay. Yep. So I'm showing on my screen for listeners, there's a, a tool that Larry had mentioned. I'll have it in the show notes, which is a portfolio visualizer. I've gone to the factor analysis. Yes, here we are. Yep. And if you just, all you have to do is type in whatever ticker symbols you want. Mm. And then if you go to the Pharma French research factors a little lower down, Yep. Right? you could type in VTI, I think, or right. Yeah, you could see. use the Pharma French, which would be limited to their factors. Yep. Or you could use the AQR factors, which would give you the quality factor. Yep. And you can add fixed income. You can then set the period you want. So you could just run one here. Let's yep. run VTI and put in, you know, 01, 01, okay. 2000, and then end whenever date you want. 2000. No, no, not 02, not 00. Sorry. <laughs> 2000. All right? All right. And then the end period, you could put 1231, 2022. Okay. Just as an example. And you could put three or four at the same time. And then let's run it at the AQR just to change it. And, uh, and then go down, say, four factor model set of three. You could run three factor, but mm. we'll just show this. All right, and then include the quality factor, yes. 
All right, and then run factor analysis. And this will show you. Now, this is an index fund, right? Yep. So you should expect it to underperform by about its expense ratio and a little bit for trading costs. Mm. Well, it's a total market fund, so you should expect it to have a beta of one and zero exposure pretty much to the other factors. And right. that's what you see. And the annual as alpha is about its trading costs. Mm. Got it. Now, if you want, let's just show one other. Let's Should run, I go back? Uh, Should I press let's back? Let's run VISVX. Okay. VISVS. X, X. X. Sorry. That's Vanguard Small. Right. Value fund. Um, I think I'm just running the same dates. Yeah. Now, this fund is going to, by definition, have some exposure to small and value. Mm-hmm. Right? And so let's run it again with the same factors of so AQR, four factors, change it to four and include quality. All right, now let's run the analysis. And there you go. So now you see, you would expect, because it owns a lot of small stocks, which tend to have higher than one betas. So it's got a little bit more than one beta, which means when the market goes up, you would expect to outperform just on that basis it's got its 0.6 loading on the size factor a 0.5 on value okay so 0.6 uh, means what does that mean 0.6 that on means size. if the value premium that year or over that period was say four percent four percent times 0.6 you'd expect to outperform by 2.4 percent purely because of that exposure okay. to value and the value was minus two percent a year you would expect to underperform by minus 1.2. That's not bad management. It's just you had exposure to a factor that was negative. And you could see the other exposures. And here the fund has a little higher negative alpha, but pretty close to its expense ratio. But you can have a little bit more turnover in a small value fund than a market fund. So you might have guessed somewhere around minus 0.3. Mm. Shows you how accurate the analysis is. Wow, what a amazing tool! I have to confess, I don't, I've never used it. So you've just opened my eyes, and I'll have a link to that, you know, for everybody. And I got some fun things I want to test in that. So I appreciate that a lot, and that's going to help me to isolate and not confuse skill and luck. And Ever. what it also helps is it tells you if you want exposure to uh, the small and value factors, you can run, you ran the same analysis, say, on BSVO, which is Bridgeway Small Value, you would see a higher market beta, you would see a higher size loading, you would see a higher value loading, and it's a little bit more expensive. And then you'll see if it adds value and if you want it. And it could underperform. You would expect it to really have underperformed in 17, 18, 19, and early, because value got killed and small didn't do well. In 2022, it dramatically outperformed, not because they're great stock pickers or market timers, but small value dramatically outperformed the market. So it's exposure mm. to those factors. So yeah, that's where you can tell much of the difference between skill and luck. You know, there's it's basically 
not skill with a passive fund, although there is definitely skill in designing fund construction rules that can make a fund more efficient in terms of trading costs, taxes, and exposure to factors. Mm. And when I when I look at a fund, I mean, people ask me that know nothing about the market. They say, well, what would be, where should I start? I, I oftentimes tell them, look at the Vanguard VT fund because it just owns every stock, you know, in a passive way. But yeah, that's, that's not- That's always should be the benchmark, your starting point, right? It's cheap. You know, you can own- Fidelity and Schwab total market fund for three basis points. Yep. It's going to be and an ETF. It's going to be incredibly tax efficient. The quote problem with that is you have no exposure to any other factors by definition. So you have a concentrated portfolio in terms of its exposure to different unique sources of risk. That is a problem when the market does poorly. And so it's you really can get hit hard. Portfolios that are more diversified across these other factors that have also shown premiums tend to perform better over the long term and have much smaller tail risks. And is there in that space of exposure to all those factors and diversification across all those factors, is there like one like the VT fund or like Fidelity has their fund that is total market? Is there one or two that you would say this one is exposed to all those factors pretty well? Well, I'd rather say there are fund families that yeah. provide a whole series of funds. The ones that I use, I recommend, I mm. own personally, my firm recommend. Ones who use what I call the science of investing or mm. evidence-based investing. It's not individual opinions. There's no individual stock selection, no market timing, just intelligent design. Like they're not purely passive like an index fund. They trade intelligently, uh, typically never trading, almost never trading more than 100 shares. So you don't get market impact costs. Right. So the fund families we tend to use are Dimensional, Avantis, Bridgeway. There are other good ones. I would mention Alpha Architect. Is a lesser known name, but one by really good, smart people. Mm. BlackRock is another. Vanguard has funds that do this, but their Vanguard's funds tend to be more index funds because they're selling to the general public. And there are some negatives of pure indexing, which I've written about, which can be either minimized or eliminated purely by intelligent design. So mm. I don't, I use in our firm. We always use like a Vanguard total stock market fund for people who want a core. And then we'll use the other funds to get us exposure to these factors. We never use Vanguard's other funds because mm. we think there are more efficient ways to do it. And that leads us into the final part of today's discussion, which is mistake number eight. Do you avoid passive investing because you sense a loss of control? Well, we're talking about active, passive. You mentioned about intelligent design and all that, but let's look at that avoiding passive because you sense a loss of control. Well, so let's again, just for our audience that hasn't listened to the first several episodes, define what we mean here, passive, because it's thrown around a lot and a lot of people use it differently. To me, I define passive, well, let me say, let's define active as individual stock selection and or market timing. Passive 
doesn't do any of that. Passive just defines its universe and then buys and holds all the securities that meet that definition. An index fund, by definition, is passive. But Andrew Stotts could create the Andrew Stotts Super Large Cap 10 Stock Fund, and it equal weights the 10 largest stocks, doesn't rebalance you know, daily. It uses when cash flow comes in, it rebalances. So it's going to shoot for an equal weighting, but it may never be exactly equal weighting. That's clearly passive, right? Mm. There's no stock, but there's no index. So all index funds are passive, but not all passive funds are indexed. Okay. So that's our definition here. Systematic, no individual stock selection. You just design your construction rules in the most efficient manner to achieve your objective exposure to factors. Trade patiently, not like an index fund, which trades dumbly. Whenever there's forced trading because of, you know, mergers, acquisitions, deletions, or additions by the S&P 500 committee, all right? The problem is this, when we're experiencing periods like today, which happens often, when everyone's worried about, is the government going to default? What's going to happen in the Ukraine? You know, is China going to invade Taiwan or whatever the du jour problem mm-hmm. of the day? You know, we want to be in control. And right, if we have an index fund, well, now the market's in control. So a lot of people look at active management in the way that they're in control. They're either in control of buying individual stocks. They're in control of choosing the active manager. They're in control of when they go in and out of the market. The problem is all the evidence says that that control costs you money. You're more likely to make mistakes, end up underperforming, right? You know, that's what all the overwhelming body of evidence suggests. And what you have to accept is, or better understand, is that when you're passive, and you use systematic strategy, you're 100% in control. You decide what exposures that you're taking to each of these factors. When you use active managers, you've given up control to some Mm. manager who could decide, I don't like these 10 stocks, or this year I'm going to go into value, and next year into growth, or I'm going to raise 20% cash, because I think you actually see control over what the academic literature, the empirical evidence shows, determines 98% of the performance of your portfolio, which is what factors you're exposed to. The only way to keep control over those is to be a passive investor. Mm. And then you have to accept that you can only control what you can control. You can't control the unpredictable things that happen. And that's key then is, to make sure your portfolio's design doesn't take more risk than you have the ability, willingness, or need to take. And you're what I call hyper-diversified, so you can withstand the shocks that happen to every single asset class. Every single one of them, we know, goes through long periods of poor performance. So the key is then, don't concentrate like a total stock market fund does, because that factor can underperform for 20 years or more, Mm. as we have discussed in the past. 
I'll give you one great example. 69 through 08, both large cap growth stocks and small cap growth stocks underperformed the 20-year treasury. That's 40 years. So if you were concentrated in that type of portfolio, you really had serious problems. Oh, 40 years is unbelievable. And that that's and the- could you have then stayed the course and reaped the benefits from 10 through 23 when those stocks outperformed again? Yeah, because it would have been year 39. You said, I give up. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's likely, right? <laughs> While we've got your brain here for a couple more minutes, I, I have a question about that's somewhat related. If you have two investors, let's say Warren Buffett, as an example, is an investor that's a concentrated investor. So let's take a concentrated investor that owns 20 stocks. And now let's take another person who's also an active investor, but you know they their risk department tells them, no, 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 you can't own 20 stocks. You got to own 150 or 200 to diversify the risk. And now then when we benchmark or look at the performance of those two funds, when we benchmark them, we look at, let's say we look at S&P 500 as an example. What we find is that when we calculate the risk-adjusted return, the portfolio that has a constant, the concentrated portfolios tend to going to be have more volatility than the 200 stock portfolio when compared against a 500 stock S&P 500. So my question to you is, when we're measuring an investor's performance, should we be benchmarking with a roughly equal number of stocks? No, you want to benchmark against the index and then consider, of course, you're going to have fatter tails with an individual, right? So you would expect more in the right tail and more in the left tail, you know, a flatter distribution when you have the concentrated portfolio. But the evidence shows that these concentrated portfolios do not outperform. Investors have been searching for years Researchers like active share, a concentrated portfolio mm. would have a higher active share. There's no evidence that that is successful, mm. at least for mutual funds. So that's a problem. And therefore, since they have the same outcomes on average, but more risky portfolios, the right solution should be unless you get a higher expected return for taking more risk, you shouldn't do it. And therefore, it's irrational to own the more concentrated portfolio. And it sounds like based upon that, if you start playing around with benchmarking, it's a smaller portfolio, you're going to start losing the fact that you're being exposed to that more risk. Let's say it this way. We've run the numbers when I think the best way to think about this, Andrew, is take that concentrated portfolio and then run a Monte Carlo simulation given the expected return and volatility, and then say, put 60% in that portfolio and 40% in a five-year treasury and run the same thing with the same expected return, right, for a total mock Vanguard fund. And you'll find the safe withdrawal rate will be higher for the more diversified portfolio, meaning the failure rate will be higher for the concentrated portfolio. Mm. The the odds of getting a higher outperforming and having a big outperformance, so you get a big bequeath, 
that you could leave to your kids will be more with the concentrated portfolio. So the tails get wider, but most of us care much more about the left tail than the right tail. So the answer is for any logical person, we tend to be risk averse. We should demand a significant risk premium mm. to make that bet on the concentrated. And it, the evidence shows it's just not there. Yeah. Well, Larry, I want to thank you for another great discussion about creating, growing, and protecting our wealth. And I really, the gold in this one, besides our discussion, was you know understanding a little bit more about Portfolio Analyzer. And I think for a lot of people listening and viewing, as well as for myself, we're going to go off and start playing with that if we're not playing with that already. So <laughs> that was great. For the listeners out there who want to keep up with all that Larry is doing, you can find him on Twitter at Larry Swedro right there. And is also on LinkedIn where he is sharing all the stuff that he's doing. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you. And I'll see you, Larry, also on the upside.